This is a State Library of Queensland podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast contains the names of people who have passed away. It's 1974. Gough Whitlam is in power as Australia's 21st Prime Minister. Music TV show Countdown premieres on the ABC. The second Godfather film is taking the world by storm and Eddie Marbo is 38 years old and working as a gardener at James Cook University, or JCU, at Townsville in North Queensland. He becomes a regular at the university library where he researches non-islander views of his land, culture and people. During this time, he makes long-term friends with some of the academic staff. He's often seen chatting to students and visitors as they pass through the campus. My dad was small in stature, big in voice. My dad had this this way of articulating what he needed to to give to you within a short period of time. And you know, and you know in yourself that you had to retain this. And when you retained it, you walked away going like, "Wow, that was that was a really good conversation." to someone who they thought was just a gardener. That's one of Eddie's daughters, Gail, who says students would often stop and ask her dad about his gardening methods and eager ones would join him in his work as he shared stories with them. It was this passion for educating others which sees Eddie start a teaching diploma at the campus. But it was another casual conversation which would lead to a life-altering revelation, which would cause him to question everything he ever thought he knew. On this particular day, during lunch with two JCU historians, Eddie was telling them all about his island home and about the land he owns there, land which was passed down to him by his father. The two historians look at each other, look back at Eddie and say... You don't own the land on Murray Island. Because when Cook came, he claimed all of Australia to be under... British law. And so that was the term that there was noted as terra nullius, meaning land of no one. There he was, being told that his land back home apparently wasn't considered his, and at a university named for the same man responsible for taking it away from his ancestors, James Cook. Dad knew that he owned land. He knew that he was, you know, entitled to it, not through white man's law, but through his own traditional law. And he was, he was quite upset when they, when they were sort of saying this to him. I can only imagine how Eddie must have felt. I want you to think about something in your house, Like a photo, for instance. It might be in a photo album, on your phone, on the wall, or stuck to the front of your fridge. It might have been handed down to you by your grandparents. Maybe your great-grandparents. Maybe even your great-great-grandparents. Well, imagine on this one day that someone tells you that the photo you grew up thinking belonged to you, because it was in your house or on your phone, actually belongs to someone else. Someone who claimed it on behalf of a king of a country far, far away more than 250 years ago. What do you reckon your reaction would be? No doubt you'd probably have some choice words to say while disagreeing with them, 
But that's exactly what happened to Eddie Koiki Mabo. Only it was so much more than a photo. It was the place he called home. And, you know, he, he in his own mind was, would have been comfortable saying, well, I don't have to fight for land rights because I own my land. Then to find out that you actually didn't started another fire in his belly to go, well, I'm going to turn this around and get back what is mine and what I know is mine. So hence the fight, the fight for his land on Mare, which became the fight of Mabo and others. That fire in his belly would continue for over a decade. It would carry him through a lengthy court battle, one that he was far from certain he'd win. But before we get to that, I need to take you back in time to get to know Eddie, so you can understand how he became the kind of man who had the grit, courage and determination to take on the Queensland government. Hi, I'm Eddie is a six-part series from the State Library of Queensland. It explores how a man from a remote island in the Torres Strait helped dismantle a 200-year-old law which claimed that, prior to European settlement, Australia was terra nullius, nobody's land, uninhabited. It's been 30 years since the landmark case changed not only Australian law, but also profoundly changed how the history of this country is taught, written and critically thought about. Eddie Koiki Mabo, along with his co-plaintiffs, Reverend Dave Passy, Sam Passy, James Rice and Selua Maposali, forever altered Australia. But what kind of person was Eddie, the man who was the first named plaintiff in the case and whose last name would go on to be known around the world? I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist, and I was 15 when the judgment was handed down. In episode two, who was Eddie, the man behind the headlines and the name? In episode one, you heard about Eddie being forced off Mer, Murray Island, when he was just 15. So Eddie leaves, leaves his friends, leaves his family, and leaves the only place he's known as home. Eddie goes off to work on a pearling boat. And he, he observed things on the pearling boats that he found to be not good, not good as in the way the Indigenous divers were being treated compared to the Japanese divers and the non-Indigenous divers. The island boys who, who dove for the pearl shells at the time were doing incredible hours and getting a whole lot of pearl shell. The Japanese divers were doing incredible jobs too, but they weren't as getting as much as the Torres Strait divers. And then the non-Indigenous divers sometimes would jump in the water and sometimes would just be on the, on the boat. And so my father was looking at how people were being paid and treated and found that to be unfair. It was during this time that Eddie witnesses and experiences unfair treatment. And as time goes on, it really shapes who he is and leads him into work which sees him speaking up on behalf of others and himself. While exiled from Mer, something that helped was a dictionary Eddie had been given. And this dictionary, he learned all the words out of a dictionary so he could learn to articulate and bring 
the fight to the white man's eyes because only using the language of the white man would he have been noticed. But before then, he would have just been another black man that worked on a boat. So even at his tender age of 15, he learned every word in, in the dictionary so he could take on the fight for his people so they could have justice and have the right to many things that they were denied. So, armed with his dictionary and a passion for workers' rights, it wasn't long before Eddie followed his heart and turned his thoughts into actions. One of the fights he took on was for fairer wages. So he stepped up and spoke on behalf of all of the the men who were diving off the same boat as him and then went on to be advocate for many other boats to make sure that they were all paid fairly. Then from there he went on to the railway where he then became an advocate for the guys who worked on the railway and then at the waterside workers. These experiences as a young man would shape him into the person he would become. It's what formed his opinions and views of the working world he'd entered and knowing all the time his place in it. By the 1960s, Aboriginal people were starting to assert their rights over land and what would become later the modern land rights movement. From the Yungnor people's Yirrkala Bark Petition in 1963 to the Wave Hill Walk-Off in 1966 by Gurindji Stockman, which sparked a nationwide network of support organisations and a strike which would last eight years. The 1960s is also when Eddie becomes involved in trade union politics while working on the railways. It's when Eddie moves to Townsville with the love of his life, his wife Benita, or Nita as she's also known. He also serves as Secretary of the Aborigines Advancement League of Queensland and is involved in the 1967 referendum to remove discriminatory references to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the Constitution. It was really good because then when Dad did all those things, he started moving in his own community, which he ended up being Townsville. He called Townsville his base base community that he lived in. And where he started being an activist here and fighting for the rights to people have a home, good health, access to legal legal aid. And so these are the these are the main community organizations that he actually helped start within Townsville to make sure and maintain that Indigenous people had representation, had a roof over their head, and, you know, could be could go and see a doctor or a dentist. And for me, that was a really, really big thing. By the 1970s, there was a huge push for land rights. The tent embassy, that permanent site of protest, a symbol of Aboriginal sovereignty representing Indigenous rights, was set up in 1972 outside what is now Old Parliament House, and it's remained there ever since. 2022 marks its 50th anniversary. As a kid, I remember watching these protests, which continued well into the 1980s on the nightly TV news. 
The 1980s would also be a turning point for Eddie, which would put him on a direct path to those who would end up taking on his case. But despite laying down roots in Townsville through all his community work, Meir was never far from his mind or his heart. He missed it and would often be seen by those who got to spend time with him drawing pictures of his home island. In fact, it was through his drawings of Meir and of the Torres Strait that Gail first came to know what the islands looked like. Drawings when I was growing up of his, his home. His home consisted of this island that resembled a, a dugong lying in the water. And for me, that's that was a powerful image just to instill in one's mind as a child to think of that this was a dugong, then to actually see the shape when he first took me back. And for me, just that understanding of that space that was his home was connected to that shape. He didn't just miss the beauty of the place, but he was concerned about his kids, his people on the mainland, and how they were going to stay connected to culture. For him, it wasn't enough to just teach those who were interested. In his mind, it needed to be part of the school curriculum. This worry fueled an idea which would see Eddie drawing up his future vision for Torres Strait Islanders a vision that would enable Torres Strait Islanders on the mainland to maintain a strong connection to their cultural practices, one they could pass down to future generations. In 1982, Eddie, speaking about the education system in a guest lecture at James Cook University, said, Minority culture is always left to rot somewhere in the corner. It just doesn't exist. If I die, my kids will not be able to speak my language if I don't teach them. With that, he found it to be one of his little moments to push to have his children learn about their own culture, their own way, and understand it. And to to understand your own culture gives you a better base to stand on. So when you have a really good base to stand on, that means you can take on all challenges without being hesitant. And that's what he wanted us to do. Because one of the things is through that he had found is through the white education system is that black children were falling through the cracks and they didn't care whereas my father cared that his children he wanted us to walk and be proud and to go on to further learning and not fall through the crack so what did he do about it he started a school a school for aboriginal and torres strait islander kids With that school, he instilled the most powerful thing he could do, which was cultural pride. Coming up in episode three of Hi, I'm Eddie. Before Eddie takes on the state of Queensland, he takes on another fight. The fight to teach his children and others cultural education so that their connection to home remains strong. Hi, I'm Eddie, was commissioned by the State Library of Queensland. It was co-produced by Wendy Love and me, Rihanna Patrick. 
you'd like to learn more, check out the links in the show notes of the episode description on whatever podcasting app you're listening on. 